We've been fighting a long time, and we have all lost so very much. So many loved ones gone. But you are not alone. There are pockets of resistance all around the planet. We are at the brink. You have no idea how important you are. If you're listening to this, you are the resistance. Welcome everybody back for another book review with Philip Campbell of the book, The Book of Non-Contradiction. Philip, welcome. Glad to be back. Big fan of the website. It's pr- I'm honored to have you on. Uh, we check it out all the time. It's uh, Thank you for all you do. And uh, I, I can't remember if I accidentally stumbled on this book or you told Ryan about it. I don't remember how. I think you... I was surprised that you already had it. We were chatting last time we talked and you were like, oh, I picked this book up somewhere and I got to dig into it. And I was like, I, I was moderately thrilled that you already owned it. Yeah, I, I can't remember exactly. I wanted, It might have been at Mount Carmel where they had a, a group come in selling books. And I saw it. I was like, well, anything by Philip Campbell, I'm buying. So I got all your stuff. But oh, especially this, because this is a topic that not a lot of people know about or even consider, especially in apologetics. So start off, what is non-contradiction? What is the principle? Uh, the principle or the, or the principle behind the book? Uh, the principle of non-contradiction. Well, the principle of non-contradiction itself is a, is a philosophical principle that just flows from the nature of reality, really. It's just that uh, something cannot both be and not be in the same manner at the same time. So... Uh, you know, if I say uh, if I say I am sitting in this chair right now, I can't simultaneously affirm that I am not sitting in this chair right now because those two principles contradict each other. So it's basically just a way to to verbalize the very basic perceptional principle about the world that there's a, a uniformity to reality. So why did you use this for the book? I mean, is there yeah, it, it came out of lots of... So I used to teach sacred scripture for the St. Augustine uh, program in Ann Arbor, Michigan for 10 years. Uh-huh. And uh, for high schoolers, we'd spend a two-year cycle on the Bible. And I would often, you know, I, I'd be researching my lessons and I would be looking at these different Bible commentaries or um, uh, critiques of the Bible that I'd find online. And I'd find this... this uh, accusation over and over again that the Bible is full of contradictions, that there's places where the Bible contradicts itself, where in one passage it affirms something and then denies it in another passage. Um, and uh, and unfortunately, a lot of these critiques were coming from the footnotes of Catholic Bibles <laughs> themselves, where they would say, you know, you'd be reading like Genesis, the beginning of Genesis, say, well, chapter one and chapter two contradict each other, so these are obviously written by different authors. I'm like, what? <laughs> Like, and a lot of these things, you know, it was very frustrating to see that coming from a Bible commentary, but I realized that this is a real problem and that many people, uh, I would, I would, uh, you know, it inevitably came up in my conversation with atheists, like, oh, how can you believe that book? It's so, it's self-contradictory. It can't be the word of God. And this really flabbergasted me because in 20 years of studying the scripture 
and I mean really applying my mind in the grace of the Spirit to understand, the, not just giving that cursory reading, mm -hmm. but digging into it and actually making effort, <laughs> um, I'd never found a single real contradiction in the text. So, but I realized that this was a real problem for people. Uh, for example, Oprah Winfrey famously said that she, she, she was raised Baptist, right? And uh, she, she famously said she lost her faith uh, by a perceived Bible contradiction. She, she was taught not to be jealous or that jealousy was bad. And then she reads in the scriptures, I am a jealous God, says the Lord your God. And she said, what the heck, how can God be jealous and command me not to be jealous? Um, of course, <laughs> you know, 10 minutes worth of study could have cleared up that problem that, you know, it's not as if the word jealousy has a uniform meaning throughout all of human English language or, or St. Paul saying to the church of Corinth, I, I have pride in you. And then also saying pride is a sin. Like, yeah. uh, you know, the, these kind of stupid things that people get hung up over. Um, or another famous example, the, uh, the, the Protestant musician Jennifer Knapp, who I used to listen to when I was younger, um, you know, she, she came out as a lesbian and she, she lost her faith and she offered as an explanation, well, it's contradictory that we should affirm some moral principles of the Bible, i.e. that homosexuality is immoral, but we don't affirm things like you can't eat shellfish, shellfish. and the, the, the law and things like that. She saw that as a contradiction and lost faith. So I realized that people were losing faith over this issue of not being able to understand or reconcile contra apparent contradictions in scriptures. And so I set about to go through the scriptures systematically and harmonize many of these perceived contradictions. Now, of course, in the case of Oprah, Jennifer Knapp, etc., you know, there's always something else going on. Like I said, 10 minutes worth of study could have resolved those contradictions. Mm -hmm. These people wanted to abandon the Christian life and use these as an example to support their decision, but still, um, you know, people with weak faith or whose faith is wavering, they get tripped up on these issues. And so I wanted to address these in a book and show how there's no real contradictions in scriptures. Um, and this is part of a long tradition. In the introduction of the book, it goes all the way back to the diatessaron of the church father, Tashian and, and St. Augustine, and shows how there's been all these works in Christian history, Protestant and Catholic, that have attempted to what was called harmonize the scriptures, especially the gospels, as to show how they're all in fundamental harmony. This uh, this approach was later abandoned. We can talk about that if you want. But anyhow, that was the the genesis behind this project. Yeah, I like how you said that there is no book like this, so I'm going to write it, I guess. Uh, just like doing this. No one's doing the interviews that I want other people to do, so I guess, all right, forget it. I'll do it. But yeah, and the, the, uh, to, to, to tell on that one moment, and then we can go on, uh, in the, you referred to in the intro of the book, I say I'm not a I'm not a scripture scholar, I'm not a theologian, I'm not qualified to write this book. But the fact is, nobody is trying to write it. The, the battle the battle over scriptural inerrancy or harmonizing scriptures has not been fought and lost. It's simply not been fought. Modern exegetes have thrown down their weapons. Uh, you look at the footnotes for something like the Saint Joseph. Uh, version of the Bible, or the, uh, or I'm sorry, the St. Joe, what's it called? You know what I'm talking about, the... Uh, the St. Jerome one? Uh, no, the NAB, the, the NAB, oh, the St. Saint Joseph edition. But not actually the Bible one? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, they'll, they'll, you'll find all these horrible, horrible footnotes, like, this prophecy was written after the fact, this was written, by, you know, and it's like, 
that's why I wrote this. I'm not eminently qualified, but I wanted to start the discussion and show, hey, there's a time-tested, very traditional way to deal with these difficult passages. It's called harmonizing the gospel accounts. We need to have this fight. We can't just throw up our hands and say, oh, yeah, the Bible's full of contradictions, but somehow it's still the word of God. Yeah, I, mean, I was reading even the like the opening chapter of Genesis. I started feeling like Forrest Gump going, I'm not a smart man, but... <laughs> Going, you know, I've read, how many times I've read that? I never thought that that was a contradiction. And going, the way you described it was great. Taking like a, an aerial view and then s- zooming in on chapter two is a, this isn't a time change. This is just making it a little bit more of a, a focus point. Yeah, yeah. There, there's this, there's this common thing to say Genesis one and two are in contradiction for various reasons. Like Genesis one says God created man on the sixth day, but Genesis two talks about man then woman created later. Genesis 1 seems to say the plants came first. Genesis 2 seems to say the plants came later, and so on. And people just assume that Genesis 2 is chronologically after Genesis 1. But what's going on is Genesis 1 gives us the broad picture, and then Genesis 2 zooms in and goes into further detail. And this is this is not just my theory. I mean, you see this all over Genesis, where you'll see in part of Genesis, it talks about the, the genealogy of Abraham, and then the following chapter, it zooms in and says, okay, now here's the story of the Abraham we just talked about in the previous chapter. It starts with a very broad universal view and continues to zoom in until it gets down to this one particular family. Why do you think no one really has taken this up? Um, I would say no one today. It's been taken up many times in the centuries before, mm-hmm. but today... Um, so you know how I mean you get the, you get the guys to write the the common objections which everybody knows you know call no man father we hear that they beat the head dead horse but well, here's the thing Every, everybody's afraid of being a fundamentalist mm-hmm. uh, nobody wants to be a fundamentalist and the definition of what a fundamentalist is has shifted so everybody agrees that someone who takes every passage of the Bible literally, would be a fundamentalist because obviously not every passage of the Bible is literal, right? We all know that. But taking the Bible literally has, the definition of fundamentalist has expanded from people who take the Bible literally to people who take the Bible seriously. Mm -hmm. And taking the Bible seriously is much different than taking it literally. And what happens is uh, people tend to get in a mess where they don't know how to take every passage seriously while not falling into a fundamentalist interpretation. So they back up to kind of just say, well, everything's symbolic, uh, you know, uh, these passages, yeah, they're, they're written by different times, different people. They don't mean the things that we think they mean, but they're still inspiring, you know, in various ways we can still drive benefit from them. Everybody is afraid of being in the position of affirming that the Bible is, is literally true on some position and then being proven wrong by science or history or something so they desperately don't want to look silly they desperately don't want to be caught with their pants down and so they uh if there's any question about the interpretation of a passage they back away and yield ground to whatever is the most accommodating uh interpretation to the modern mind is is what i think um so it really wears away scholarship and uh and you'll see this all the time in these exegetical approaches that make everything into a symbol, mm-hmm. right? I'm not saying the Bible isn't symbolic. Clearly, there's parts that are symbolic. There's parts that are allegorical, obviously. 
that's part of the patristic way of interpreting it. But an exegete that makes everything symbolic is giving up on trying to figure out what the text really means. And that's what you get a sense of when you read these footnotes saying that uh, the prophecies of Daniel were all written hundreds of years later, or the Gospels are all in contradiction, or Genesis 1 and 2 are in These people aren't even trying to find out what the Bible means. They're just, they're just not trying anymore. Yeah. Uh, and that, that's what's going on. Yeah, just when you were saying that, I'm thinking, all right, fundamentalism, uh, we take, this is my body, fundamentally, that, that's what it means. Uh, or the, the great one of, I am a door. I, all I've ever heard is people say, oh, he was just symbolic, blah, blah, blah. And it wasn't until like, till last year that I found out that shepherds actually put sheep in a thing and laid down in front of it, acting as a door. Yeah. <laughs> well, the problem is people are lazy. They, they want to take one uniform. They want to just take one uniform way of interpreting the Bible and apply it across the board. They want to say it's all allegory. It's all literal. It's all this. Uh, they don't want to take the time to parse out what individual texts mean in context. Um, that's really the issue, I think. But, yeah, I think it's just that overall biblical scholarship has yielded so much ground to the higher critical method to, uh, to uh, you know, in, in the New Testament to various, like the, like the Q hypothesis, mm -hmm. um, which you're probably familiar with. For me, Q is a Star Trek character. It's not something I want to Bible, but, you know. And we're not talking about that other Q. <laughs> <laughs> no, 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 no. But so, I, I don't know. I just think they've, they've just pretty much adopted the assumptions of modern higher criticism, which, which, which essentially doesn't really affirm that the Bible has an objective meaning. It's all based on... It's all based on literary interpretation, on cultural assumptions, and on what you get out of it and what it means to the community, et cetera, et cetera. So just for those out there that don't have the book, the couple of the chapters, well, I'll just go over them. Two creation accounts, the hardening of Pharaoh's heart, homosexuality, selfish, and the law. That's the chapter where he talked about the uh, music director, music singer, whatever. Marrying uh, a brother's wife, God's jealousy, uh, Oprah. Genocide, uh, genocide in Joshua, the suicide of Samson. I thought that was fascinating how you put that together. I didn't. I never heard anybody complain that they committed suicide before. Uh, two accounts of Saul's death, census of David, suicide of Razis, uh, genealogy of Christ, seeking a finding, praying to be seen, conflicting Passover chronology, uh, chronologies for my English-speaking people. I can't speak right now. It's late. Resurrection appearances of Jesus and 191 brief difficulties reconciled. <laughs> yeah, that's my favorite chapter. Woo! <laughs> yeah, so an example of uh, that chapter, which has 190 difficulties resolved. So uh -huh. you'll get you'll get passages where it'll say, like, um, the Gospel of Matthew says that Peter was called by the Sea of Galilee, uh -huh. but the Gospel of Mark says it was at Lake Gennesaret. Um, and then, of course, the, the, record, the, the harmonization is that uh, if anyone would look at ancient geography, Lake Gennesaret and the Sea of Galilee are the same body of water. <laughs> <laughs> it's also called the Sea of Tiberias. You know, it's got various different names. So the, the, the brief contradictions are ones from just people who just don't under, even understand the geography or the history are just throwing something to the wall, seeing if it'll stick. Like, uh, like in, in one gospel, Jesus says, Peter, James, and John were present. In the next gospel, he says, Peter, James, and Andrew were present. Uh, that's not a contradiction unless it were to say, Andrew was present and John was absent. Mm -hmm. Right. The, the obvious thing. I mean, we do this all the time. We hang around talking to our friends at the water cooler. 
we say, uh, oh yeah, me and Mike and John were talking the other day, but in fact, Henry was there also. He just wasn't saying anything, so we didn't mention him. And then somebody else mentions Henry was there too, right? These are just, I, I just call these contradictions of ignorance, just people who just, they're just throwing whatever to the wall just to see if it'll stick, but they're not real contradictions in any sense. Have, uh, did anybody ever come up to you and say that about the uh, Sea of Galilee and you tell them, you give them the response, did they change their mind or they just double down? <laughs> I, I would love to see their face on that. <laughs> yeah, like, it's the same body of water. Um, I don't know. I found that one on an atheist website. You know, like, you know, like, yeah, it's just on an atheist website. One gospel says the Sea of Galilee. The other one says the Sea of Gennesaret. What now, Christians? You know, like, <laughs> yeah. um, same place. <laughs> yeah, yeah, same, same place, same place. Um, when I when I was mentioning the Samson one. Uh, where did you, where did, you, did anybody come up to you and said that that was a they were, or where did you find out that that someone called it suicide? Uh, do you remember? Uh, I know I told you I went throwing any curveballs, but that just popped in my head. I don't remember where I got that one. I mean, Samson's death in a certain sense could be construed as suicide because he took an he pushed the pillars over, mm -hmm. knowing this would kill himself. You know, so you he deliberately he deliberately terminated his own life in a certain sense. Um, but it got me thinking, and, and what got me thinking on this one was um, Samson very clearly kills himself. Um, but then when you read Hebrews 11, he's praised for the action. It's, it's mm -hmm. considered a faithful action, but suicide is also a mortal sin. <laughs> so, um, and it made me start thinking, you know, our definition of suicide is maybe a little off because there's all sorts of situations where people kill themselves and we don't say they're guilty of suicide. Mm -hmm. the, uh, the most obvious explanation is like a soldier who leaps on a hand grenade to, uh, to save someone else. He is killing himself in the sense that he knows his action is going to bring about the end of his own life, and he's doing it intentionally with full knowledge. Uh, I mean, uh, uh, you know, a cursory look at that would say that's the, that's the, the categories for a mortal sin. You're taking a grave action, you're killing yourself, with full knowledge, he knows mm -hmm. it's going to happen, and with full consent. But clearly, that's not an, the sin of suicide, right? Because yeah. uh, no despair, it, right? Because the thing is, here's the thing: he's not really like if that soldier could save his comrade by some other means, he would. Mm -hmm. You know, like if he was able to save his comrade without blowing himself up, he wouldn't say, "Oh darn, I meant to kill myself, and I'm still alive." You know, he, he would be happy that he's still alive, that he didn't have to die, right? So what we see is a classic example of the principle of double effect, where Samson or the soldier in this example is accepting the necessity of his death to bring about something else, but his death is not intrinsic to that. He's not he's not saying, I I will to die, and I'm going to intentionally make sure that, that I die. Like, same thing, if Samson would have came out of the dust and been still alive, he would have been tickled pink that he was still living, right? He wasn't actually trying to kill himself, but merely accepting the inevitability of that outcome as something that was necessary to uh, to uh, accomplish the destruction of his enemies or the saving of another soldier's life. So it really gets you thinking on these moral questions of what really constitutes a suicide. Yeah, this was the only way out. He couldn't go anywhere and take out the entire army. Yeah, yeah, he could free his, he could free his people from Philistine oppression by one single act, which he knew would also bring about his death. I mean, that's why it's praised as an act of uh, of, of heroism, right? Yeah, type of uh, was, I can't remember who calls it a type of Christ. 
Right. Yeah. Exactly. Exactly. It's a it's a type of Christ's victory over uh, over the devil. So, um, so yeah, I thought that was a, that was an interesting one uh, mm-hmm. to look at as well. You mentioned at the beginning we were going to go back and talked about uh, why this practice ended. Uh, where were you going to go with that? Oh yeah, so there was a very rich history in Christendom in uh, among Protestants and Catholics uh, all the way up until the Enlightenment of writing what were called gospel harmonies, mm-hmm. and these would sometimes be sometimes the books would literally have four panels that showed texts of the gospel lined up with each other, um, showing how the passages harmonize with one another. And the underlying assumption in the pre-modern era is that there's an underlying theological unity to the scriptures. That's what that's the fundamental idea behind a gospel harmony. Or you see it in the Middle Ages with a book called the Biblia Pauperum, which tries to harmonize the Old Testament with the New, very similar to the way we have Old Testament readings in the Mass that line up, you know, that are meant to, you know, draw attention to New Testament mysteries. So these people had this underlying assumption that there was a theological harmony of the scriptures because it was a revelation from God. How could it not have a unity to it? when it's coming from God, who is truth, right? So that's the underlying assumption. What happens in the early modern period, starting with the Enlightenment, is people start to doubt, they start to doubt supernatural revelation. Um, and once you start to doubt that the Bible is is inerrant because it's the Word of God, then there's no longer an assumption of an underlying theological unity. Now, at first, people were so wedded to the Christian worldview that they wanted to like preserve Christian morality but get rid of the supernatural element so famously we have the Jefferson Bible where he literally like took uh, you know shears and cut out literally the pieces of the New Testament that had miracles it was an effort to preserve a a harmony of Christian ethics but without what Jefferson considered supernatural mumbo-jumbo right but the fact is once you once you start moving from an anti-supernatural bias, there's no necessary reason why the scriptures have to have unity whatsoever. And then, in, and then in fact, instead of seeing unity or seeing ways to harmonize them, you start seeing disunity. You start looking at Genesis 1 and 2 and saying, oh, this is just further evidence that this isn't a supernatural book because they, they contradict each other or, or, or any, you know, any other examples, differences in the gospel, whatever. So as people increasingly got comfortable saying that the scriptures were not uh, supernaturally inspired, then obviously that takes away any fundamental unity that they that they must necessarily have, and people start drawing attention to what they perceive to be the, uh, the centrifugal forces of the scripture that, that show that it's all, you know, divergent, allegedly. Um, and, uh, and as we were saying earlier in the, in the program, that it's unfortunate that even even scripture scholars who still consider themselves believers have to some degree yielded ground to some of these uh, to some of these uh, ideas like, OK, well, I still want to believe it's inspired in the word of God, but I'm going to still affirm, you know, that uh, the law was written a thousand years after Moses, you know, but then it becomes like, OK, look, if it was written a thousand years after Moses, in what way is it a divine revelation? In what way, you know, it's supposed to be a compilation of different scribes? Like, what does revelation even mean at that point, right? Yeah. And then, it, and then, if you tease it out long enough, it becomes the fundamentally modernist proposition that the religious value of a text is that which you bring to it, not which it's invested in by by God Himself. That's what's at the heart of all of it. 
Yeah, some uh, some guy took the name Leo Thirteenth. I think wrote about that in Provincismo's Deus about people falling away from the church because of that. <laughs> yeah, I, we quote Providentissimus Deus in the introduction uh, to the book where he says it is absolutely forbidden to narrow inspiration to only certain parts of the Bible. You know, to say uh, you'll find this common thing after Vatican II, you'll find an interpretation of Dei Verbum. Is Dei Verbum, the, the dogmatic constitution on divine revelation of Vatican II, says the scriptures are inspired uh, uh, in so far as they inherently teach for our salvation, everything that God thought necessary, etc. And people will say, well, it's only inspired in the things that God thinks are necessary for salvation. It's not inspired when it's talking about history, when it's talking about all these other, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, of course, that's a crazy reading of it. The, the, the meaning of it in context is that God thought that a divine revelation was necessary for salvation, and so he made one. And the whole scriptures is necessary for our salvation. Who can pick and choose which passages are necessary for salvation? Like, is it necessary for salvation to believe that bread was multiplied? You know, I, I don't know. Like, who can possibly tease that out? That's the thing. It becomes just an occasion for further erosion of faith in scripture's credibility. Yeah. Scholars. <laughs> Scholars, yeah. Uh- well, speaking going with that, and you brought up the uh, not a, not actually the Bible, uh, NAB. She was at the office the other day, and someone goes, "What book should you read? What Bible should you look at?" And they go, "The NAB." I go, "No, not actually the Bible." They'd never heard that before. <laughs> which which Bible version would you recommend? Uh, well, I know it's a softball. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. I mean, like, it depends on what you're going. Like, I. For the actual translation and the fidelity to the actual Greek and, and Hebrew, like I do like the Revised Standard Version, mm-hmm. but the footnotes are horrible. The, the footnotes in the RSV are awful. Um, they're, they're, they can be faith-destroying at times. They're not as bad as the NAB footnotes, mm-hmm. but they're still bad. Um, of course, you're not going to find anything like that in the douay Rheims, uh, which is much more faith-building. Um, I, I don't. I don't like the actual translation of the Douay Rheims as much. But uh, if you just want something that's going to build up your faith instead of be like, maybe that wasn't really written in the, you know, <laughs> then just stick with the with the, with the Douay Rheims or the. Uh, gosh, what's the one that's the English translation of a? Uh, am I thinking of the Saint Jerome one? Um, the Jerome Commentary. Yeah, no, I don't know. Just, I mean, the Douay Rheims is the is the safest, you know, one. I mean, the the if you ignore the footnotes, I like the RSV, you know. Um, but the RSV is the one I use when uh, whenever I'm doing research for something. Uh, but if I if I'm writing something that I want more edification value, then I'll use the Douay Rheims. Um, but you get these awful translations in the NAV where, like, it will tra- like in the Prophecy of Isaiah eight a virgin shall conceive and bear a child. It translates virgin as young woman. Mm-hmm. It just says a young woman. Uh, and then in the foot, and then it has a footnote. And then in the footnote, it has the Hebrew word for, I can't remember what the word is, but it'll say, it'll say a young unmarried woman, i.e. virgin. And I'm like, then say virgin. Just, just like, do it. Why? Why? It's almost like they're afraid of like offending Jews or something by saying this is a prophecy of Christ. I don't know. <laughs> yeah. A young woman will get pregnant. Shocker. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, no, no kidding. Yeah. So, oh, gosh, I, I don't know. Yeah, it, it's sad that we have to have, like, a hodgepodge of, uh, you know. Uh, but, but, gosh, there's, um. if you go on, uh, 
I can't remember the website. You've got all these different Bible websites where you can click, you know, on the different Bible versions. But also, I don't know if anybody used this, but on some of these websites, like, um, gosh, I'm drawing a blank on which one it is. The Bible Gateway? Something like that. It'll also have all these commentaries on the side where you can see, uh, let, me, let me just look that up real quick. So you can look up your, you know, your Bible uh, according to whatever translation you like. But then there's also um, commentaries on the side um, by by Protestants, but also uh, but also Catholics as well. You can find um, oh gosh, yeah, it's not Bible Gateway. Well, whatever. Um, I don't want to give the incorrect information, but you can find like um, you can find uh, like Cardinal Bousset has commentaries that he wrote, or these various different theolo- Catholic theologians, mm-hmm. and you can look at a passage. And then it'll like, let's say I'm looking up Matthew, you know, 12, 14 or something. It'll bring up the translation. And then on the sidebar, it'll say, here's all the different Bible commentaries and what has been written. And you can find good pre-modern Catholic uh, commentaries sometimes just on those generic Bible websites that'll say, here's what Cardinal so-and-so said about this or, or whatever. And those are those are cool. So I don't know if people knew that those are out there on those Bible websites, but they're definitely very helpful. No, uh, now the people, if you don't think this is a, you know, I guess you say important, I've heard people tell me they've heard sermons from clerics and bishops that there's contradictions in the scriptures. So, Phil, can you, have you heard that from anybody? Yeah, yeah, all the time. It, it, it makes me so angry. I've sat through homilies where the priest says that there's a contradiction in the Bible, uh, and he'll, he'll, elaborate the contradiction and then he won't resolve it uh it's infuriating to me and i don't know if the priest just doesn't i half the time i think he doesn't know there is a a way to harmonize it he's just never been taught because they're teaching the higher criticism and the documentary hypothesis and the q theory at all the seminaries so i don't know if he just doesn't know Uh, i think sometimes they're trying to be hip uh, they're, they're trying to be hip. And what I mean is hip in the eyes of secular scholarship. Don't want to like, look I'm weird. Kind of like, I'm not a fundamentalist. I can admit the Bible has contradictions. I'm a serious scholar that should be taken seriously, you know. Um, so it, it's, it's, it's kind of like when you see, uh, I think it's the same thing when you see someone like, like Bishop Barron or someone like affirming something like evolution. You know, it's, you know it, it's that he wants to look he wants to look respectable, you know, like, I, I, I'm not a fundamentalist. I can accept evolution, you know. Um, so, but I think with a lot of these parish priest level uh, homilists, I, I think in many cases, they just don't know that the, that there's answers to this. I Like in one parish near me, uh, there was a, a pastor who was preaching and he was, he was preaching that there was a, a contradiction and it was actually one of the contradictions in this book. I can't remember. And uh, some friends of mine attended the parish and they were like, oh, no, 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 no. And they went out and bought my book and gave it to him. <laughs> they went out and gave it to him and he, he read it. And uh, I don't know what he thought about it. They, I don't know if they followed up with him, but they, they gave him this book and was like, Father, you need to try harder. Like, there's, uh, You can resolve this fairly easily. Most of these contradictions can be resolved with, you know, 10 minutes to a half hour of study which is, you know, but you, you preach that from the pulpit, like, oh, yeah, there's a country, you know, there's, oh, I think it was about Jesus' resurrection appearances. Oh, that's yeah. a big, that's a big deal. You know, uh, you, you're saying like, ah, oh, there's contradictions in Jesus' resurrection. That can destroy somebody's faith for their whole life, you yeah, know? Yeah, yeah. Uh, 
that just trust his faith through a whole life. Uh, I think it. I think it took me. It took me three hours to do the research and write the chapter on Jesus' resurrection appearance. Like, if you would have put in three hours of effort, you could have solved that problem. Yes, <laughs> not even that probably. <laughs> yeah, and so I don't know. I, I wish a lot of these pastors would do more research. I also want to say a lot of times, um, and I mentioned this in the introduction to the book. A lot of times the word contradiction is used improperly, like what we're dealing with is just a complex issue or what I call a theological difficulty. Um, for example, how can a loving God send people to hell? Mm -hmm. um, that's not a contradiction, that's a theological difficulty. Or how can, how can you know, in the chapter on Pharaoh's, the hardening of Pharaoh's heart, mm -hmm. God punishes Pharaoh for hardening his heart and not letting the people go, but God also says, I hardened Pharaoh's heart. So you have God saying that he's doing something, and then Pharaoh is getting punished for the thing that God said that he did. That's not a contradiction. That's a theological difficulty between uh, predestination and free will, um, which is not a contradiction. It's just a theological problem that theologians grapple with. And any theologian worth his salt would say that these two ideas are not contradictory, to say that God knows and predestines things but also we truly act with free agency. It's just a complicated issue that takes a lot of insight to understand, but it's not a contradiction. That's what the whole chapter on the genocide of Joshua is about, where God orders the slaughter of the Canaanites in what, and I don't, I, you've read the book, I don't mince words about it. I say it is a genocide. It, it's, it's clear that it is. Um, that's what the slaughter of an entire ethnic group is, you know, um, uh, but, um, so how is God love when he commands? So I, go, I spend a lot of time going through the background of this and how to understand it properly. So a lot of these issues aren't really contradictions at all. They're just complicated theological questions that people have grappled with. Um, but they do, have, they do have resolutions. In case no one knows what the Q thing is, can you explain the, the, the Q idea for everyone? Um, so... Whatever sort okay, of Star so, Trek yeah, that so, was. So, tra so, tra <laughs> so traditionally, uh, in Catholic tradition, you have this idea that the Gospel of Matthew was written first, mm -hmm. and that it was written in the Hebrew language, which probably means Aramaic, the language that was spoken by the Jews. And then you have Mark follows, and Mark was, a, was like a Greek synopsis of Matthew that was written by St. Mark, who was Peter's secretary. Then you have Luke, who wrote his own Gospel, in Greek for the Gentiles, whereas Matthew is meant for the Jews. Luke wrote his gospel for the Gentiles using the material of Matthew and Mark as a source and then fleshing it out with his own stuff that he picked up from St. Paul, who was, uh, you know, who was one of the apostles. And then John comes later and John is writing, uh, John is writing primarily to the Gentiles using his own recollections. John feeling like he doesn't, by the time you get to John, John doesn't feel like he needs to rehash everything that was already written three other times in the so-called synoptic gospels. He's, he's um, using more personal recollections of things Jesus said and did that was not in those other gospels. And then he, he, he gives the spiritual interpretation of them. That's the traditional way that we understand the gospels and it solves what's called the synoptic problem. The synoptic problem is the, the fact that Matthew, Mark and Luke share lots of material, even verbatim, and why is that? Uh, and it seems pretty evident, but the Q hypothesis doesn't accept that. The Q hypothesis says that uh, that there was a original gospel that is called Q 
from the German word quelle, which means source. There's a gospel that was that was uh, used by Matthew, Mark, and Luke as a as a source, and that Matthew, Mark, and Luke just took that Q gospel and embellished it with all their own stuff that they made up um, based on whatever they wanted to say to their audience. So so basically, whatever is common in the three synoptic gospels comes from this other document called Q. And what is different in the three gospels is not different because Matthew, Mark, and Luke are deciding to emphasize different things that really happen for the sake of their listener. Uh, it happens because they're embellishing it with their own basically, you know, made up stuff or interpretations of Jesus' teaching. Basically, they're just freewheeling, you know, with, with uh, you know, taking some source material and then adding their own stuff onto it. John, forget about him, he, he might not have even existed the Gospel of John, it was not written by John the Apostle. It was written by the Johannine community sometime around 130. And it's not an authentic representation of what apostolic Christianity looked like. So so essentially the Q hypothesis, try it, it undermines people's faith in the Gospels by saying not any one of these Gospels was an original eyewitness account. They all are based on a document that is lost and Lord knows what it really says. Maybe it was suppressed, who knows. Uh, the differences between the Gospels um, are due to the embellishments of the authors, and John is to not be taken seriously whatsoever. And uh, according to the Q hypothesis, Mark is written first, and Mark is basically the only gospel they take seriously. And this is interesting because Mark is the shortest gospel, of course, and has the least amount of detail. <laughs> so, uh, so this is a way around problematic things like the infancy narrative of Luke, or thou art Peter, and upon my church I will build, or upon my, this rock I'll build the church. That's an embellishment from Matthew, where he's trying to, you know, bolster Peter's authority for some reason. So they love Mark because Mark does. Mark is a, a, an abbreviated version. It doesn't have any of those things. So they say Mark was written first. Everything else is an embellishment. Now, uh, as I mentioned, the traditional idea that we find way back in Saint Irenaeus is that Matthew comes. That's why Matthew's first. There's a reason why the Gospels are ordered the way they are. They're ordered chronologically, according to patristic consensus. Matthew's written first to the, the Jews, and then what happened to St. Peter when he goes on his missionary journeys to Antioch and Rome and wherever, he asked his secretary to make an abbreviated version of Matthew that was more of use to the Gentiles. So that's what Mark is. Mark is an abbreviated version of Matthew with all the specific Jewish context stuff taken out all the like, thus was it written in the prophet Isaiah, like the stuff that wouldn't make sense to Gentiles, yeah. it's removed. So Mark is very much written from that. So uh, again, that's the explanation. You, you, why would you invent a non-existent missing document to explain when, when the traditional harmonization has already explained it? I would just want to say, who's the sales guy for and hire him? Because how do you sell that? <laughs> Yeah, well, the way the, again, this all comes down to ideological stuff. Q or the documentary hypothesis in the Old Testament, these are explanations for the text of the Bible that, in the case of Q, it erases the apostolic authority, right? It's like, no, no, this isn't an eyewitness account by Matthew. This is an, uh, this is an embellishment by the Matthean community to bolster certain claims being made by St. Peter. You know, it, it, it tries to cast aspersion on the veracity and apostolicity of the Gospels, and that's the real reason why you find this theory being pushed. 
I appreciate that. Hey, and Philip, thank you for doing this. Uh, plug your work up. First off, everyone, go out and buy the book. Hand it to uh, a priest. The, the, the book name, again, is The Book of Non-Contradiction, Harmonizing the Scriptures. You can just get it on Amazon. Just look for Book of Non-Contradiction by Philip Campbell, and uh, you can just get it on Amazon. Appreciate it. Yeah, no problem. Everyone go out and buy the book. Give it to a priest, bishop, seminary. Uh, he gave the idea earlier. Just expound on it. Uh, what you got a website? Uh, yeah, well, uh, you can find everything I've ever written is on uh, www.philipcampbell.net. Uh, that's where all my all my my books are, and uh, yeah, so that's where you can find that. Appreciate it, Philip. Thank you as always, bud. All right, take it easy, Steve. Yes, sir.